Good morning. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. Here is U.S. President number five, James Monroe, part two. Secretary of State and Secretary of War, Madison Administration. Monroe returned to the Virginia House of Burgesses and was elected to another term as governor in 1811, but served only four months. In April 1811, Madison appointed Monroe as Secretary of State in hopes of shoring up the support of the more radical factions of the Democratic Republicans. Madison also hoped that Monroe, an experienced diplomat with whom he had once been close friends, would improve upon the performance of the previous Secretary of State, Robert Smith. Madison assured Monroe that the distance regarding the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty had been a misunderstanding and the two resumed their friendship. On taking office, Monroe hoped to negotiate treaties with the British and French to end the attacks on American merchant ships. While the French agreed to reduce the tax and release seized American ships, the British were less receptive to Monroe's demands. Monroe had long worked for peace with the British, but he came to favor war with Britain, joining the war, joining with war hawks such as Speaker of the House Henry Clay. With the support of Monroe and Clay, Madison asked Congress to declare war upon the British, and Congress complied on June 18, 1812, thus beginning the War of 1812. The war went very badly, and the Madison administrators quickly sought peace, but were rejected by the British. The U.S. Navy did experience several successes at the Monroe convinced Madison to allow the Navy ships to set sail rather than remaining in port for the duration of the war. After the resignation of Secretary of War William Eustis, Madison asked Monroe to serve in dual roles as Secretary of State and Secretary of War, but opposition from the Senate limited Monroe to serving as acting Secretary of War until Brigadier General John Armstrong won Senate confirmation. Monroe and Armstrong clashed over war policy, and Armstrong blocked Monroe's hopes of being appointed to lead an invasion of Canada. As the war dragged on, the British offered to begin negotiations in Ghent, and the United States sent a delegation led by John Quincy Adams to conduct negotiations. Monroe allowed Adams leeway in setting terms so long as he ended the hostilities and preserved American neutrality. When the British burned the U.S. Capitol on the, and the White House on August 24, 1814, Madison removed Armstrong, the Secretary of War, and turned to Monroe for help, appointing him Secretary of War on September 27th. When Monroe signed as Secretary of State on October 1st, 1814, but no successor was ever appointed, and thus from October 14, 1814 to February 28, 1815, Monroe effectively held both cabinet posts. Now in command of the war effort, Monroe ordered General Andrew Jackson to defend against a likely attack on New Orleans by the British, and he asked the governors of nearby states to send their militias to reinforce Jackson. He also called on Congress to draft an army of 100,000 men, increase compensation to soldiers, and establish a new national bank to ensure adequate funding for the war effort. Months after Monroe took office as Secretary of War, the war ended with the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. The treaty resulted in a return to the status quo antebellum, and many outstanding issues between the United States and Britain remain. But Americans celebrated the end of the war as a great victory, partly due to the news of the treaty reaching the United States shortly after Jackson's victory in the Battle of New Orleans. With the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, the British also ended the practice of oppression. After the war, Congress authorized the creation of a national bank in the form of the Second Bank of the United States.
election of 1816. Monroe decided to seek the presidency in the 1816 election, and his wartime leadership has established him as Madison's heir apparent. Monroe had strong support for many in the party, but his candidacy was challenged at the 1860 Democratic-Republican Congressional Nominating Caucus. Secretary of the Treasury William H. Crawford had the support of numerous Southern and Western congressmen, while Governor Daniel D. Tompkins was backed by several congressmen from New York. Crawford appealed especially to many Democratic Republicans who were wary of Madison and Monroe's support for the establishment of the Second Bank of the United States. Despite his substantial backing, Crawford decided to defer to Monroe on the belief that he could eventually run as Monroe's successor, and Monroe won his party's nomination. Tompkins won the party's vice president's nomination. The moribund Federalists nominated Rufus King as a presidential nominee, but the party offered little opposition following the conclusion of a popular war that they had opposed. Monroe received 183 of the 217 electoral votes, winning every state in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Delaware. Presidency Monroe largely ignored old party lines in making federal appointments, which reduced political tensions and appointed augmented the sense of oneness that pervaded the United States. He made two long national tours to build national trust. At Boston, a newspaper hailed his 1870 visit as the beginning of an era of good feelings. Frequent stops on his tours include ceremonies of welcome and expressions of goodwill. The Federalist Party continued to fade during his administration. It maintained its vitality and organization integrity in Delaware and a few localities, but lacked influence in national politics. Like in serious opposition, the Democratic-Republican Party's Congressional Caucus stopped meeting, and for practical purposes, the party stopped operating. Administration and Cabinet Monroe appointed a geographic balanced cabinet, through which he led the executive branch. At Monroe's request, McCarford continued to serve as Treasury Secretary. Monroe also chose to retain Benjamin Crown and Shield of Massachusetts as Secretary of the Navy and Richard Rush of Pennsylvania as Attorney General. Recognizing Northern discontent at the continuation of the Virginia dynasty, Monroe chose John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts as Secretary of State, making Adams the early favorite to eventually succeed Monroe. An experienced diplomat, Adams had abandoned the Federalist Party in 1807 in support of Thomas Jefferson's foreign policy, and Monroe hoped that the appointment would encourage the defection of more Federalists after General Andrew Jackson declined appointment as Secretary of War. Monroe turned to South Carolina Congressman John C. Calhoun, leaving the cabinet without a prominent Westerner. In, a, in late 1817, Rush became the ambassador to Britain, and William Work succeeded him as Attorney General. With the exception of the Crown and Shield, the rest of Monroe's initial cabinet appointees remained in place for the remainder of his presidency. Missouri Compromise in February 1819, a bill to enable the people of the Missouri Territory to draft the Constitution and form a government preliminary to admission in the, into the Union came before the House of Representatives. During these proceedings, Congressman James Talmadge Jr. of New York tossed a bombshell into the air of good feelings by offering the Talmadge Amendment, which prohibited the further introduction of slaves into Missouri and required that all future children of slave parents therein should be freed at the age of 25 years. After three years of rancorous and sometimes bitter debate, the bill with Talmadge's amendments passed. The measure then went to the Senate, where both amendments were rejected. A House-Senate conference committee was able to resolve the disagreements on the bill, and so the entire measure failed. The ensuing debates pitted the Northern restrictionists and slavery legislators who wished to bar slavery from the Louisiana territories. 
against Southern anti-restrictionists, pro-slavery ledgers who rejected any interference by hitting slavery expansion. During the following session, the House passed a similar bill with an amendment introduced on January 26, 1820 by John W. Taylor of New York, allowing Missouri into the Union as a slave state. The question had been complicated by the admission in December, Alabama, a slave state, making the number of slave and free states equal. In addition, there was a bill in passage through the House January 3, 1820 to Maine as a free state. The Senate decided to connect two measures. It passed a bill for the admission of Maine with a minute enabling the people of Missouri to form a state constitution. Before the bill returned to the House, the Second Amendment was adopted on the motion of Jesse B. Thomas of Illinois, excluding slavery from the Louisiana Territory north of the parallel 36 degrees 30 minutes north the southern boundary of Missouri, except within the limits of the proposed state of Missouri. The House then approved the bill as amended by the Senate. The legislation passed, which became known as the Missouri Compromise, won the support of Monroe and both houses of Congress, and a compromise temporarily settled the issue of slavery in the territories. Internal improvements. As the United States continued to grow, many Americans advocated a system of internal improvements to help the country develop. Federal systems for such projects evolved slowly and haphazardly, the product of the contentious congressional factions and the executive branch generally concerned with avoiding unconstitutional federal intrusions into state affairs. Monroe believed that the young nation needed an improved infrastructure, including a transportation network, to grow and thrive economically, but did not think that the Constitution authorized Congress to build, maintain, and operate a national transportation system. Monroe repeatedly urged Congress to pass an amendment allowing Congress to the power to finance internal improvements, but Congress never acted on this proposal, in part because many congressmen believed that the Constitution did, in fact, authorize the federal financing of internal improvements. In 1822, Congress passed a bill authorizing the co collection of tolls on the Cumberland Road, while with the tolls being used to finance repairs on the road. Adhering to state position regarding internal improvements, Monroe vetoed the bill. In an elaborate essay, Monroe set forth his constitutional views on the subject. Congress might appropriate money, he admitted, but it might not undertake the actual construction of national works nor some jurisdiction over them. In 1824, the Supreme Court ruled in Gibbons v. Ogden that the Constitution's Commerce Clause gave the federal government the authority to regulate interstate commerce. Shortly thereafter, Congress passed two important laws that together marked the beginning of the federal government's continuous involvement in civil works. The General Survey Act authorized the presidents to have surveys made of routes for roads and canals of national importance in a commercial and military point of view, or necessary for the transportation of public mail. The president signed responsibility for the surveys to the Army Corps of Engineers. The second act passed a month later, appropriated $75,000 to improve navigation on the Ohio and Mississippi rivers by removing sandbars, snags, and other obstacles. Subsequently, the act was amended to include other rivers such as the Missouri. This work, too, was given to the Corps of Engineers, only formally trained by body of engineers in the New Republic and as a part of the nation's, nation's small army, available to serve the wishes of Congress and the executive branch. Panic of 1819 Two years into his presidency, Monroe faced an economic crisis known as the Panic of 1819, the first major depression to hit the country since the ratification of the Constitution in 1788. 
The panic stemmed from declining imports and exports and slacking agricultural prices as global markets readjusted to peacetime production and commerce in the aftermath of the War of 1812 and the Napoleonic Wars. Severity of the economic downturn in the U.S. was compounded by excessive speculation of public lands, fueled by the unrestrained issue of paper money from banks and businesses concerns. Monroe lacked the power to intervene directly in the economy as banks were largely regulated by the states and he could do little to stem the economic crisis. Before the onset of the Panic of 1819, some business leaders had called on Cong Congress to increase tariff rates to address the negative balance of trade and help struggling industries. As the panic spread, Monroe declined to call a special session of Congress to address the economy. When Congress finally reconvened in December 1819, Monroe requested an in increase in the tariff but declined to recommend specific rates. Congress not raised tariff rates until the passage of the tariff of 1824. The panic resulted in high unemployment and an increase in bankruptcies and foreclosures and provoked popular resentment against banking and business enterprises. Foreign Affairs According to oh, historian William E. Weeks, Monroe involved a comprehensive strategy aimed at expanding the Union externally while solidifying it internally. He expanded trade and pacific relations with Great Britain while expanding the United States at the expense of the Spanish Empire, for which he obtained Florida and the recognition of a border across the continent. Faced with the breakdown of the expansionist consensus over the question of slavery, the President tried to provide both North and South with guarantees that future expansion would not tip the balance of power between slave and free states, a system that Weeks remarks did indeed allow the continuation of America's pension for the best of four decades. Treaties with British and Russia Monroe pursued warmer relations with Britain in the aftermath of the War 1812. In 1870, the United States and Britain signed the British Baguette Treaty, which re regulated naval armaments, armaments on the Great Lakes of Lake and Lake Champlain and demilitarized the border between the U.S. and British North America. The Treaty of 1818, also with Great Britain, was concluded October 20, 1818, and fixed the present Canada-United States border from Minnesota to the Rocky Mountains at the 49th parallel. The Accords also established a joint U.S.-British occupation of Oregon country for the next 10 years, though they did not solve every outstanding issue between the U.S. and Britain. The treaties allowed for greater and trade between the United States and the British Empire and helped avoid an expensive naval arms race in the Great Lakes. Late in the Monroe's second term, the U.S. concluded the Russo-American Treaty in 1824 with the Russian Empire setting the south limit of Russian sovereignty on the Pacific coast of North America at the 54-degree, 40-minute parallel the present tip of the Alaskan Panhandle. Acquisition of Florida Spain had long rejected repeated American efforts to purchase Florida, but by 1818, Spain was facing a troubling colonial situation in which a secession of Florida made sense. Spain had been exhausted by the Peninsular War in Europe and needed to rebuild its credibility and presence in its colonies. Revolutionaries in Central America and South America were beginning to demand independence. Spain was unwilling to invest further in Florida, encroached on by American settlers, and it worried about the border between New Spain and the United States. With only a minor military presence in Florida, Spain was not able to restrain the Seminole warriors who routinely crossed the border and raided American villages and farms as well as protected southern slave refugees from slave owners and traders of the southern United States. 
In response to these Seminole attacks, Monroe ordered a military expedition to cross New Spanish Florida and attack the Seminoles. The expedition led by Andrew Jackson defeated numerous Seminoles but also seized the Spanish territory capital of Pensacola. With the capture of Pensacola, Jackson established de facto American control of the entire territory while Monroe supported Jackson's actions. Many in Congress harshly criticized what they saw as an undeclared war. With the support of Secretary of State Adams, Monroe defended Jackson against domestic and international criticism, and the United States began negotiations with Spain. Spain faced revolt in all her American colonies and could neither govern nor defend Florida. On February 22, 1819, Spain and the United States resigned the Adams Onus Treaty, which ceded the Florida's in return for the assumption by the United States of claims of American citizens against Spain to an amount not exceeding $5 million. The treaty also contained the definition of the boundary between Spanish and American positions on the North American continent. Beginning at the mouth of the Sabine River, the line ran along that river to the 32nd parallel, the then due north to the Red River, which is followed to the 100th meridian due north to the Arkansas River and along that river to its source, then north to the 42nd parallel, which is followed to the Pacific Ocean. As the United States renounced all claims to the west and south of this boundary, Texas, to so Spain surrounded any title she had to the northwest, to Oregon country. Monroe Doctrine Monroe was deeply sympathetic to the Latin American Revolutionary Movements against Spain, he was determined that the United States should never repeat the policies of the Washington administration during the French Revolution when the nation had failed to demonstrate its sympathy for the aspirations of people seeking to establish Republican governments. He did not envision military involvement, but only the provision of moral support, as he believed that a direct American intervention would provoke other European powers into assisting Spain. Monroe initially refused to recognize the Latin American governments due to ongoing negotiations with Spain over Florida. In March 1822, Monroe officially recognized the countries of Argentina, Peru, Colombia, Chile, and Mexico, all of which won independence from Spain. Secretary of State Adams, under Monroe's supervision, wrote the instructions for the ministers to these new countries that declared that the new policy of the United States was to uphold Republican institutions and to seek treaties of commerce on a most favored nation basis. The United States to support inter-American congresses dedicated to the development of economic and political institutions fundamentally differing from those prevailing in Europe. Monroe took pride as the United States was the first nation to extend recognition and to set an example to the rest of the world for support of the cause of liberty and humanity. For the part, the British had also a strong sense of ensuring the demise of Spanish colonialism with all trade restrictions mercantilism imposed. In October 1823, Richard Rush, an American minister, the American minister in London, advised that Foreign Secretary George Canning was proposing that the U.S. and Britain issue a joint declaration to deter any other power from intervening in Central and South America. Adams vigorously opposed cooperation with Great Britain, contending that a statement of bilateral nature could limit United States expansion in the future. He also argued that the British were not committed to recognizing the Latin American republics and must have imperial motivations themselves. Two months later, the bilateral statement proposed by the British became a unilateral declaration by the United States, while Monroe thought that Spain was unlikely to reestablish colonial empire on its own. He feared that France or the Holy Alliance might seek to establish control over the former Spanish possessions on December 2, 1823. In his annual message to Congress, Monroe articulated what became known as the Monroe Doctrine, 
He first reiterated the traditional U.S. policy of neutrality with regard to European wars and conflicts. He then declared that the United States would not accept the recolonization of any country by its former European master, though he also avowed non-interference with existing European colonies in the Americas. Finally, he stated that European countries should no longer consider the Western Hemisphere open to new colonization, a jab aimed primarily at Russia, which was attempting to expand its colony on the northern Pacific coast. The election of 1820. The collapse of the Federalist left Monroe with no organized opposition at the end of his first term, and he ran for re-election unopposed. The only other president other than Washington to do so. A single elector from New Hampshire, William Plumer, cast a vote for John Quincy Adams, preventing a unanimous vote in Electoral College. He did so because he thought Monroe was incompetent. Later in the century, the story arose that he had cast his dissenting vote so that only George Washington would have the honor of unanimous election. Plumer never mentioned to Washington in his speech explaining his vote to the other New Hampshire electors. States admitted to the Union. Five new states were admitted to the Union while Monroe was in office. Mississippi, December 10, 1817. Illinois, December 3, 1818. Alabama, December 14, 1819. Maine, March 15, 1820. Missouri, August 10, 1821. Post-presidency. When his presidency ended on March 4, 1825, James Monroe resided at Marone Hill, which is now included in the grounds of the University of Virginia. He served on the University Board of Visitors under Jefferson and under the second rector, James Madison, both former presidents almost until his death. He and his wife lived at Oak Hill in Alley, Virginia, until Elizabeth's death on September 23, 1830. In August 1825, the Monroes had received the Marquis de Lafayette and President John Quincy Adams as guests there. Monroe incurred many unliquidated debts during his years of public life. He sold off his Highland plantation. It is now owned by his alma mater, the College of William and Mary, which has opened it to the public as a historic site. Throughout his life, he was financially insolvent, which was exacerbated by his wife's poor health. Monroe was elected as a delegate to the Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1829 to 1830. He was one of four delegates elected from the Senator district made up of his home district of Loudoun and Fairfax County. In October 1829, he was elected by the convention to serve as a presiding officer until his failing health required him to withdraw on December 8th, after which Philip Pendleton Barber of Orange County was elected presiding officer. Upon Elizabeth's death in 1830, Monroe moved to 63 Prince Street in Lafayette Place in New York City to live with his daughter Maria Hester Monroe, governor, who had married Samuel L. Governor, Monroe's health began to slowly fail by the end of the 1820s. On July 4, 1831, Monroe died from heart failure and tuberculosis, thus became the third president to have died on Independence Day. His death became 55 years after the United States Declaration of Independence was proclaimed five years after the deaths of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. His last words were, I regret that I should leave this world without again beholding him. He referred to James Madison, who in fact was one of his best friends. Monroe was originally buried in New York at the governor family's vault and in the New York City Marble Cemetery. Twenty-seven years later, in 1858, his body was reinterred at the President Circle in Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia. The James Monroe tomb is a U.S. National Historic Landmark. Religious beliefs. When it comes to Monroe's thoughts on religion, historian Bliss Isley notes, less is known than that of any other president. 
No letter survived in which he discussed his religious beliefs, nor did his friends, family, or associates comment on his beliefs. Letters that do survive, such as ones written after the death of his son, contain no discussion of religion. Monroe was raised in the family that belonged to the Church of England when it was state church in Virginia before the Revolution. As an adult, he attended Episcopal churches, some sort of stated deistic tendencies, and his few references to an impersonal God. Unlike Jefferson, Monroe was rarely attacked as an atheist or infidel. In 1832, James R. Renwick Wilson, a reformed Presbyterian in Albany, New York, Christian Monroe for having lived and died like a second-rate Athenian philosopher. Slavery Monroe owned dozens of slaves. He took several state slaves with him to Washington to serve at the White House from 1817 to 1825. This was typical of other slaveholders as Congress did not provide for domestic staff of the president at that time. As president of Virginia's Constitutional Convention in the fall of 1829, Monroe reiterated his belief that slavery was a blight, which even as a British county of Virginia had attempted to eradicate what was the origin of our slave population, he rhetorically asked, the evil commenced when we were in our colonial state, but acts were passed by our colonial legislature. Preventing the importation of more slaves into the colony, these were rejected by the crown. To the dismay of states' rights proponents, he was willing to accept the federal government's financial assistance to emancipate and transport free slaves to other countries. At the convention, Monroe made his final public statement on slavery, proposing that Virginia emancipate and deport its bondsmen with the aid of the Union. Monroe was governor of Virginia in 1800. Hundreds of slaves from Virginia planned to kidnap him, take Richmond, and negotiate for their freedom. Gabriel's slave conspiracy was discovered. Monroe called out the militia. The slave patrols soon captured some slaves accused of involvement. Sid Berry says some trials had a few measures to prevent abuses, such as an appointed attorney, but they were hardly fair. Slave codes prevented slaves from being treated like whites, and they were given quick trials without a jury. Monroe influenced the executive council to pardon and sell some slaves instead of hanging them. Historians say the Virginia courts executed between 26 and 35 slaves. None of the executed slaves had killed any whites because the uprising had been foiled before it began. Monroe was an active in the American Colonization Society, which supported the establishment of colonies outside of the United States for free African Americans. The society helped send several thousand free slaves to the new colony of Liberia in Africa from 1820 to 1840. Slave owners like Monroe and Andrew Jackson wanted to prevent free blacks from encouraging slaves in the South to rebel. Liberia's capital Monrovia was named after President Monroe. Legacy. Historic reputation. Polls of historians and political scientists tend to wreck Monroe as an above-average president. Monroe presided over a period in which the United States began to turn away from European affairs and towards domestic issues. His presidency saw the United States settle many of its long-standing boundary issues with an accommodation with Britain and the acquisition of Florida. Monroe also helped resolve sectional Tensions through his support from all regions of the country. Political activist Fred Greenstein argues that Monroe was a more effective executive than some of his better-known predecessors, including Madison and John Adams. Memorial. The capital of Liberia is named Monroe after Monroe. It is the only nation national capital other than Washington, D.C., named after the U.S. president. Monroe was the namesake of 17 Monroe counties, Monroe, Maine, Monroe, Michigan, Monroe, Georgia, Monroe, Connecticut, Monroe Township, New Jersey, and Fort Monroe are all named for him. Monroe has been depicted on U.S. currency and stamps, including a 1954 United States Postal Service 
Firecent Liberty issue postage stamp. Monroe was the last U.S. president to wear a powdered wig tied in a queue, a tricorn hat, and knee breeches, according to the style of the late 18th century that earned him the nickname the last cocked hat. He is also the last president to have ever been photographed, to have never been photographed. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this segment on U.S. presidents. Hope you stay safe. Stay home if you can. Practice social distancing if you do go out. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Use universal precautions during this coronavirus pandemic. I hope you had a Merry Christmas and look forward to the new year 2021 coming in. Thank you and have a good week.